I'm here with Chris Arches, a PHP developer and speaker based in Canada and Milton, Ontario. Chris is currently principal engineer at Cinecore and has been building web applications of all kinds since 1998 with a particular focus on the importance of testing. Chris has a popular online presence as the Grumpy Programmer, blogging and making products that help developers write better and more maintainable code. He's also co-organizer of the Greater Toronto Area PHP User Group, and he writes the At The Keyboard blog at littleheart.net and co-hosts a podcast series at devhell.info. Chris is the author of two LeanPub books, The Grumpy Programmer's Guide to Building Testable PHP Applications and The Grumpy Programmer's PHP Unit Cookbook. In this interview, we're going to talk about Chris's interests and his two books, how he's gone about promoting them, and about his experiences using LeanPub. We'll also talk about ways we can improve LeanPub for him and for other technical authors. So thank you, Chris, for being on the Lean Publishing Podcast. I'm glad to be here. You know, when you list all those things that I did, now I understand why my wife is mad at me for spending so much time on the computer. Wow. <laughs> it's, you, yeah, never actually, kind of, you never kind of realize how much time you spend doing stuff until someone collects it all and lists it all out for you. Yeah, and actually I left a couple of things out because the <laughs> intro is getting a little long. Um, so just let me start by asking, um, in the past you've referred to yourself as an internet plumber or electrician. What do you mean by that? Well, I think in terms of when you think of uh, what I would call the modern-day web developer, for lack of a better phrase, they kind of know how to do a little bit of everything. They know some front-end stuff, so they're probably familiar with doing a little bit of design work. They know some HTML. They'll know CSS. They'll know JavaScript. Whereas the vast majority of my experience has been on the plumbing side of things, back-end code. So uh, when I'm explaining what I do to people, I kind of tell people, like, if you ever go to a website and... Um, you want to go pay for something with a credit card or you're signing up for an account, I'm the guy who's writing all the code that makes sure that that part of the application is flawless. So in many ways, I kind of feel like an electrician. I'm rummaging around in between the walls and dodging vermin and dirt and trying to fix people's, uh, fix people's applications. Their plumbing as, uh, you know, your virtual plumbing, I guess, is another way of uh, calling it. So. Yeah, I was going to say it's a very rich metaphor. I mean, as you say, sort of between the walls, but those walls... Um for you as like for a plumber or an electrician are actually built by somebody else. Yes, uh, generally speaking, yeah. I, I don't do a lot of kind of bespoke, I guess is the hipster term uh, people are using these days, artisanal. applications. Yeah, artis or, yeah artisanal or, or artist anal as I like to call it sometimes. <laughs> I don't know if this is a, a PG podcast. But, um, but yeah, so I spend a lot of time basically screwing around with other people's stuff and trying to fix it and make sure that it's working better. And what's that like generally as a relationship like with with the people who've built it, um, do you do you come in sort of midway through the process, or are you there from the beginning? Uh, I mean, I generally find I'm coming onto projects, even ones where, like, because I'm a full time employee where I am, um, okay. coming into projects that are basically already started, and most of the time, um, the application is working and it's live. And it just needs to work better, and the deploy, and you know, the pushes to production need to go a little, little bit better, and the quality of the code needs to get a little bit better. So I'm kind of brought in to help push them um, along that road, uh, and and I try to do it despite what my Twitter stream sometimes appears like, right. in kind of an, in kind of in a non-adversarial way, um, because I, I I tell people that my Twitter account is I'm not really like that in person. It's more a combination of like performance art and trying to promote my little um, marketing brand of being the grumpy programmer. Yeah, that was actually my, my next question. Um, if you could tell me a little bit about how you developed that identity and why you chose grumpiness. 
Well, I don't know. I mean, there, if you, I've been I've been programming web stuff anyway since 1998, which is a long time. I like to joke one year's like ten in the yeah. real world, so that's like 150 years of uh, 15 years of programming, so 150 years in internet time. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots to be grumpy about if you're a programmer. There's lots of poorly designed applications, difficult to use tools, lots of corners cut taken by developers who just haven't gotten the experience of what it's like to create a big, especially on the PHP side of things where it lends itself very easily to the the big, um, you know, the big plate of spaghetti metaphor okay, with, everything, okay. with everything all twisted up. So uh, plenty to be grumpy about. And my wife always, always would joke about how grumpy I was about programming in general. And so when I, when a couple of years ago, when I decided I wanted to start creating things that I could sell to supplement my income, because a little bit of extra money is always nice, I knew kind of instinctively that I needed some way to make myself stand out from the crowd. Right. Um, so I thought about, well, what am I really when I think about these things? What I really am is I'm a grumpy programmer, grumpy about all these things that I have to see, that I have to, have to help fix, and constantly remind people uh, about what they should be doing. So I hit upon the idea of doing the grumpy programmer's guide to whatever, and um, a combination of some really aggressive marketing plus being at the right place at the right time, which seems to be, the, seems to be how lots of these things succeed. Um, the idea of a grumpy programmer seems to have really resonated with people, and um, I've just, you know, taken the ball and ran with it. Oh, that's great. That's great. Um, and, yeah, do you find that um, sometimes your, your grumpiness um, is kind of people don't get, get the joke or, or the idea? Yeah, sarcasm tags are hard to wrap around a tweet. Right. Right. <laughs> okay. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I was wondering, um, have you always had a special interest in the importance of testing, best practice, and automation? Or was, uh, was there a particular experience that led you towards those interests? Yes. about Probably about 10 years ago, I was working um, on a project. I was working for uh, an adult dating website, and it was a PHP app, and it was a big, humongous mess. Um, I had been on the original team. I was actually the the person who had like committed the first line of code into the CVS repository. If that gives you an idea of how long ago that is. Okay. Uh, and so we built this thing in a big, huge um, death march to get it done um, for a, a, what turned out to be a totally arbitrary deadline. And when we were done, um, we had created a mess. And so what happened is that we kept we kept running into the situation where we would change a bit of code and then something else something elsewhere in the application would break so we would test them like oh, how i don't be like i don't understand how this one change over over here messed something up over there so um i started looking around saying there must be somebody must be uh, be dealing with this in a better way that we are so i f- started searching for stuff about testing and i somehow i stumbled across um stumbled across a copy of um, one of the early um, extreme programming books. I, I think one of our, I think one of our, um, one of our project managers had a copy. So I borrowed that over a weekend and kind of read through it. And I was like, oh, a lot of this stuff kind of makes sense. And the testing part was like, you mean I could write a whole bunch of code that would test everything and let me know that I've broken something before it goes up into production? It's like, why did nobody ever tell me about this before? <laughs> so, so ever since then. I've been pushing with greater intensity, of course, over 10 years with a really hard press probably for the last three of trying to get other people understanding the benefits of 
wrapping um, wrapping your application in automated tests with the whole goal of finding problems before your um, before the users of your application do. And is there something peculiar to PHP um, with respect to testing that makes it more difficult? Well, um, or is that just a general issue? For no, I don't think. So. I think of. Uh, I mean, PHP, of course, having the really low barrier to entry because it's so easy to use. Right. Um, beginners aren't forced to learn any kind of structure, and a lot of what makes testable code uh, testable is structure. You have to learn about proper object models and dependency injection and and Demeter's law and what it means to have something that's tightly coupled. So. All sorts of concepts that I go on and on endlessly with people about. Um, it's just that PHP makes it so easy to just to slam something together and get it working. Most of the other mainstream scripting languages, I guess if you throw in Ruby, Python, um, and JavaScript, um, JavaScript is, is kind of loosey-goosey like PHP is, but in a different way. But, um, but Ruby and Python kind of, they, they have a, um, I'm trying to think of the right phrase here, a smaller funnel. There's, you have less options with Ruby and Python to okay. do things, whereas, whereas PHP, you can, there's a zillion different ways to do stuff, and you don't, and you can do it really, you can do it really structured, or you can just slap it all together. So PHP, by its nature, being a templating language, one of the first languages designed specifically for the web, um, people just learn through the slam everything together. Right. Um, programming methodology. And then later on, when they discover that this thing that they've built is no longer maintainable and they can't change it without breaking stuff, that's when they end up like I was, trying to find um, better ways to make their applications work. Okay. Um, you mentioned in your first book that you, and I'm quoting here, feel out of sync at times with the mainstream PHP community. Can you explain a little about why you feel that way? I think one of the main reasons I feel out of sync often is, for the most part, the PHP community concentrates on using frameworks to build applications. And um, I've I've used probably, if we're talking professionally, meaning haven't been paid money, I've probably used about a dozen different frameworks. And what happens is that people get focused on the the tools instead of on the techniques. And I'm a big guy on technique on repeatable processes. I, I like to keep things simple. And so much of what goes into frameworks that are that are designed to help you rapidly build stuff mm. is to me is to me magical and can be difficult to understand. And you will I often find myself fighting against the framework in order to get it to do something the way that I want to do it. And I'm one of these people that despite my grumpy demeanor, I don't enjoy fighting the tools that I'm using. So this is. I feel like there's a constant push and pull between people who want to build things quickly and people who want to try to build things by creating small, simple, easy to understand modules and components and then mushing those components together to do other things. Most frameworks don't do that. Um, there's still tons of coupling, even with, even with frameworks that um, promote themselves as being modular you still end up with a ridiculous number of dependencies. And again, that makes it very difficult when you're debugging and trying to figure out why something isn't working. The further you are away from, um, from just simple, um, e easy to understand code, the more likely you're going to end up with uh, a humongous maintenance problem on your hands. So that's kind of why I feel that P PHP people all the time are saying, what framework should I use and what tool should I use? And all the time I'm like, how about you just learn PHP and learn some good programming practices and then the rest will take care of itself. Because every programmer that, every PHP program programmer that I admire um, 
is very much the same way in that they learn the language first and frameworks are just kind of a side effect of the things that they do once in a while, but if they have to do something without a framework, they're not lost. So many PHP developers are lost without their little favorite set of frameworks, libraries, and tools, whereas, whereas I'm more than happy to experiment with stuff and grab new things just to fit uh, my idea of, of the thing I want to build at a particular moment. Okay. Um, okay. Um, are, there, are there any um, big controversies in the PHP community at the moment that you have a strong opinion about that you'd like to have your say on? Um, not really. I mean, I've probably vented most of the things that I don't like on Twitter. I'm not the type that holds grudges, so I kind of let it all out and then move on to the next thing that happens to be bugging me. Um, okay. I mean, it's still the fact that testing is a really hard sell um, simply because I think testing is one of these things that you have to get absolutely burned by not doing it before you understand why why it's worth the time and effort to put all these things, to build your little continuous integration setups and to write all the tests and make sure that every time you're merging changes together, all your tests get run. All those things are all building up towards what I call my own personal holy grail, which I've only ever gotten to do once, which is the continuous deployment idea where a, de right. a developer makes the change and then it gets run through a whole battery of tests and then if everything passes, it goes up into production without... Um, without any other um, human touching it. And that means that deployments become a non-issue. And that's the, thing, that's the thing that I see all over the place. Wherever I've worked, doesn't matter the languages, deployments are always stressful and people seem to want to make it stressful instead of saying, what can we do to make a deployment of something that's mission critical a total non-issue, that we can push things and go to lunch and no one's going to be freaking out. Do you, do you see a difference between small companies and big companies with respect to resistance to, to testing? No, it's pretty much the same across the board. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Um, actually, um, I, want to, I want Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I, was, I, I think, if anything, there's kind of like a sweet spot. Like really small companies, probably it's a really hard sell to devote resources to get all that infrastructure in place. And really large companies probably have their own set of processes in place. So those are, are also incredibly difficult to disrupt. I think there's kind of a sweet spot, maybe a, maybe a team of like six or seven developers. I think with that spot, with that many people in place, you can probably free up enough time and maybe stall people out while you get all that stuff in place. Small, like I said, small shops are usually super busy and you hear the whole, you're not, I'm not getting paid to write tests mantra, which I've okay. talked about in presentations. And then large companies usually have their own idea on how things are supposed to be done. I'm extremely uh, lucky and grateful that my current employer, Cinecore, um, they had a, a humongous commitment to testing already. So when I when I started working there, all this stuff was in place already. So I, it's not like I had to um, start complaining and getting into conflicts with people just to get basic testing stuff put in place. Okay. Um, on uh, Speaking of, of um, your conference speaking and um, book writing and podcasting and, and all the other parts of your career, I was, I was just wondering, um, I'm sure people would be interested to know how you go about balancing all of these activities with, with a day job. <laughs> with a day job and a family. And um, a family, yeah. I'm married and have two, and have, uh, two kids. Um, the secret is, uh, for me anyway, um, is really strict use of a calendar. I usually plan things a week at a time. Um, and I'll literally look at my calendar and say, um, find out the days where I haven't, where I'm not doing something already. If, because summertime is a perfect example. Summertime, so 
Um, I play um, slow pitch baseball. My my youngest daughter plays softball. Um, one of my hobbies is I participate in an online simulation baseball league. So if, if I were to pop up in my calendar for the months of May through August, almost every single day I have a little dot on the calendar, meaning that there's something I'm supposed to be doing. So without that calendar to make commitments, firm time commitments too, I would never get anything done. Um, I literally plan my week and say, on this night I'm going to do this thing, on this night I'm going to do that thing, and then I always try to make sure I put a few breaks in there as well. Okay. Um, you were in, speaking of, again, of conferences and speaking, you were in um, Europe recently. Were you there to do any speaking engagements? Uh, yeah. I, uh, earlier this year, I spoke at um, uh, PHP Benelux. I did the keynote, which was kind of an awesome experience. I'd done lots of technical talks, but this was more like a, um, a soft skills talk where I talked about what I saw of trends in uh, web development and things like that. And then, um, what else? Yeah, they all kind of blur together after a while. I did so many of them compressed in a short period of time, especially like November, December, January. I think I did like, I went to four conferences or something in two months. So, um, and then I did, uh, and then I went to Minneapolis and spoke at a PHP conference there. And then I did the big, I did the the largest kind of community-driven PHP conference, which is PHP Tech, which is always in May. Um, so yeah, I speak a lot. Haven't done so much speaking in the second half of this year. I promised my wife I'd act, I would actually stay home this summer instead of traveling all over the place. So it's been a little bit uh, of a different experience. Did you um, do any training for speaking or was it something you just dove into? Uh, I, I sort of did some training. Um, when I was in college, um, we had to do a, one of our required courses was a, a, like a public speaking and presentations course. And until that point... I'd been one of those people who were like super nervous and didn't want to do speeches. And I'd be the guy who'd be up there with a piece of paper in his hand and I'd be so nervous the paper would be shaking, you know, that type of person. Yes. But just something, when I took that course, something happened where a few bits in my head flipped and I no longer was scared to get up in front of, get up in front of a group of people um, and speak on a topic. So I don't know what happened. I really don't. I wish I could could have figured it out. But all I know is after that point, I never had a problem speaking. So when opportunities came up to um, start submitting talks to conferences, I just said, okay, I'm in. And I did it. Um, and just, you know, with every talk, it gets a little bit easier, um, a little bit smoother. And I mean, I would be lying if I was saying that I wasn't nervous before giving some talks, but there are some talks I've I mean, I have a building testable applications talk that I've given almost a dozen times now. I can almost do that one um, without any slides. So um, it's just it's just a combination of just something happened to me in that course that, you know, everything lined up in my brain to not freak out when I have to give a presentation. And just knowing the material and being passionate about it, um, I find makes it super easy to talk. That's actually a, a coincidentally, that's a perfect segue into the next question I had, which was, <laughs> um, it's a sort of more general um, um, but there's a lot of talk these days about the value of online courses and correspondingly the value of increasingly expensive traditional university degrees. Um, and with the 2013 university year about to start um, here in North America anyway, I was just wondering what you think about that issue, particularly in the computer science space. So like, what would you say to all the university students starting conventional computer science degrees in the next month? Well, that's interesting because... I mean, I went to the I went through the community college system here in, in Ontario, so I went to Sheridan okay. College. Um, 
I went twice. I liked it so much. I have <laughs> so I have diplomas from Sheridan in civil engineering, which it was very interesting, and then one in computer science technology. So not degrees, but diplomas. I have no idea what the U.S. equivalent would be, like a bachelor's or something. But I don't I don't know what it is. But um, so when I went to college. The internet was there, but hadn't been commercialized yet. I mean, I remember surfing the web in text and doing all my email in Pine. <laughs> so, a much, much different world than there is now. Right. Um, and then, and then we did absolutely nothing to do with the web. So everything that I learned about the web was self-taught. Um, but once in a while, I think back of if I had gone to if if I had gone to university and taken computer science, it just wasn't in the cards for me for a variety of reasons. Um, what what would have been different? I often wonder what would have been different. There is so much stuff out there that if you're the type of person that's self-driven to learn, you can probably fill in a lot of the gaps pretty quickly. But if you're not, then I don't know, the collaborative environment of a university will probably help you. I mean, I th these days I have no idea what people are being taught at university in computer science. Sometimes I think, did I miss out on learning some fundamentals that would have given me a shortcut to be a, to be a better programmer in a shorter period of time? Are there some algorithms and design patterns that I would have learned at university that I didn't learn because I'm self-taught? I mean, those questions kind of creep in once in a while, but for the most part, I've been pretty successful in figuring out how to um, fill in those gaps, either by teaching myself or finding people who are way smarter than me who taught me the things that I needed to know. So, I mean, I, I think that there is value in a computer science education if you are the type of person that is not self-directed, that if you need that collaborative environment, because if you need help, you're never going to learn anything on your own. Well, I was going to say, and it's, it's a very interesting question, um, partly because the particular nature of um, programming, which involves constant learning um, all the time, Oh, abs absolutely. Yeah. I, I tell people I feel, I feel like a shark. I got to keep swimming or I'm going to die. You know, like die, not literally, but die like in the technology sense. Yeah. Because especially things happen so quickly. Um, new and useful tools just come up out of nowhere. And um, if you get complacent and pick like a favorite set of tools and say, I never want to do anything else, um, you're setting yourself up for a really bumpy ride. And so if someone, if someone weren't in, like I guess I'm, I'm sort of picking up on what you were saying about being self-driven. Uh, if you're not, if you're not sort of driven to begin with, it sounds like maybe programming isn't the way to go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, it depends on what you want. Like, if you want to, if you, if you just want a job, I'm pretty sure you can pick up enough at university or even on your own. I mean, there are plenty of, uh, not to use it as a derogatory term, but workaday programmers, right? There's programmers for whom writing code. Um, is just is just a job, and they're in at nine, and they're out at five, and when they're not at work, they're not touching a computer for any programming purposes, right? There's lots of people like that. I mean, people have tried to estimate like what percentage of people are actually are actually going to conferences and pursuing sharing knowledge, and they've thrown numbers around like one or two percent. And wow. I I mean I don't know. I can see that. I can see that there's lots of programmers out there who are just working. And they don't care about programming as a career. They care about programming as a job. And that's cool. There's lots of people who have interests outside of their job. And those interests take precedence over, over everything else. Me, computers is the thing I've always liked since I was a little kid. My first computer was a VIC-20. I was like eight or nine years old. So I've had a computer. I'm 42. So I've had a computer around for like over 30 years. I don't know anything else other than having a computer around to play, to fool around on. So it, for me, it's a very natural thing to do stuff at work 
And then in the off hours, find other things to do on the computer that I find interesting. Sometimes, um, pro sometimes they're programming, sometimes they're not. Yeah, like, um, and just to switch gears, um, uh, other things to do related are writing um, programming books, which you've mm -hmm. written two of. Um, and I just wanted to ask you a bit about your first book, which was um, The Grumpy Programmer's Guide to Building Testable PHP Applications. Can you explain a little about what led you to write this book and who the audience, intended audience is for it? So I had been doing um, presentations on kind of the same topic. So I thought to myself, I had written a, I had written a very small self-published book before this one about using how, about how to take a legacy PHP application and refactor it to use a specific PHP framework called Cake PHP. The framework's still around, but it's like in version, almost in version three. And when I wrote the book, it was a while ago. Um, and so I kind of liked that experience. And I said, okay, so what's so what's the next level? It's like I want to start doing like info products, and I want to start selling stuff. I'm like, I find I, I I've been blogging for a long time, so writing's writing is something that I'm pretty comfortable doing, and I can crank out the material when I need to. So I was like, so what can I do to kind of make these two things dovetail together? It's like, well, how about I write a book to help me do better presentations on the same topic? So I started doing research into what are some of the things that people need to know if they want to get their application from this kind of messy, untestable state to one where they can actually start using um, the tools and frameworks that are available. So that was kind of like research to do talks at conferences. So once I started putting that together, I'm like, you know what? I think this actually would be a pretty decent book. So I can, I can do the book and I can make some money on the side and help pay for some of my hobbies and keep my wife off my case with the credit card bills and all these <laughs> other wonderful things that come from, um, from being passionate about so many things in your life. So it just seemed like a natural thing to the research for the project led to a large number of notes, which made me think I can easily turn this into a book. And with your, with your second book, you... Um you were, I think even, I haven't checked the sales pages lately, but I think even more successful. And I know you had a really successful launch. So I, I, probably a really big question, but can you tell me a little bit about how you managed that launch? Well, I can definitely talk about it. Um, so last summer, um, I, after years of procrastinating and trying to line everything up, um, I got into a product development course that a, a friend of mine, Amy Hoy, runs called 30 by 500. And the whole premise of this course was the idea that she she has been very successful with running several bootstrapped um, businesses. Uh, she has uh, her and her husband have um, uh, a software as a service app called Freckle that does time tracking, and the two of them have actually been very successful consultants doing mostly JavaScript and Ruby stuff. And so she found that she really enjoyed teaching people the things that she did. Because she found that she could teach she could teach people to do almost the same thing that she was doing, so I, I looked at my experience with my first book and I was I thought you know what this went okay but I feel like and I know nobody can see this I feel like my I feel like I'm I'm doing hand motions while we talk so like <laughs> like my success was like at this low level with the first book but from what I knew and from the things I talked to Amy about because Amy and I have a a friendship for quite a long time. We're not super good friends, but we've known each other for a long time. And after following Amy, I was like, I'm, I was convinced that I could like really crank it up to the next level. So I went into her course, it's 30 by 500, um, with the idea of that um, 500, the whole thing was 500 customers paying $30 a month is $180,000 a year, which should be enough to run all but the most really resource intensive online businesses. So when you look at it that way, it's like, well, this sounds like a, an achievable number. 
But of course, I wasn't building a platform uh, or any kind of software thing because I had a day job and lots of hobbies and there was like literally no room to do something like that. But I could carve out time to like make something like a screencast or a book. So I went through her course and did all the exercises. And her whole thing was basically do your research. Too many people are like, oh, I have this great idea. What do you think? It's more like, what are, what are the type of problems that people are really having? So go do some research. Find out the things that programmers of your language of choice are complaining about. And then say, can I give them something to solve this problem? Right? It's this whole, the, 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 you know, the little tripod that Amy's stuff sits on is you have a pain and a dream and you're going to offer them a solution. So it's the whole idea is that you don't want to build something until you know with 100% certainty that people are going to give you money. And I followed Amy's um, process uh, pretty much to the letter. I did research. I started looking around the people who are getting into the testing stuff for PHP like I was. And what were the things that they were complaining about? What were the things that they were struggling with? And the thing I found the most was people were struggling just to use the testing framework. So that's when I knew, aha, that's the thing I should do for my next book. And then that thing basically wrote itself. People have asked me how long I spent. I imagine from beginning and, and including writing the book, doing some edits myself. I got a whole bunch of people to do technical edits, which was incredibly helpful, and setting up the website for the book and, and just the stuff with LeanPub, getting that set up. It took me 100 hours to crank out that book. So 100 hours, and I've made, I don't even know what the latest number is, probably more, probably close to 11,000 off of the book. I think, okay, and twenty. Uh, if I remember the numbers correctly, like twenty-three or twenty-four thousand dollars in the last two years off the two books together, which is awesome. And were you leveraging um, any email lists that you had? Um, I well, I was using. I was using. I used my the email list from the first LeanPub book to promote the second one, um, and of course, I tweeted all the time incessantly about right. what I was working on. Um, which is part, which for me, social media was really the key strategy to attract people. Even like, you know, like today, um, where I tweeted about my bundle, the Lean Pub bundle that I have being on sale. And then you guys very graciously put it on the front page, which was even better. And, and that translated every time I tweet, it translates into sales because I, I took the time to learn how to use Twitter as a marketing tool for all these things that I'm working on. Um, you know, just to go on a little bit of an aside, um, People think that developers often have phobias about talking about money and promoting themselves. I have no problems talking about money, and you can definitely learn to promote yourself in a positive way without coming across as a douchebag. And I think that sometimes I get close to that line of like promoting a little bit too hard, but I'm right on that edge, and um, I don't think I would have done nearly as much in terms of like book sales, plus I did some videos which have sold quite well, plus the recognition that if I do submit to conferences, I get consideration because people know who I am and, and they know the message that I'm trying to send out. So all the things together just have been um, the books plus the incessant uh, marketing on Twitter have been awesome for my career. Did you did you publish either of your books while they were still in progress or did no I I, yeah, I no I so. never did the, I never did the in progress I didn't want to do that um, simply because I wanted to work on it and present it as like a finished product um, because I felt that I would be too tempted to go back and screw around all the time hmm. we we'll get we we'll get too finicky about this paragraph isn't quite right and I want to redo this chapter and um, I mean I'm pretty sure that I could do something like that that I could do if I want to, if I haven't decided if I'm going to do another book yet or not, but I could do it as the beta thing. But 
I, I worried that I would, I would be um, spending too much time fiddling with the book and not actually getting stuff done and not actually getting the book to an, uh, a whole state where I was happy with uh, pushing that out to people. That's very interesting. So, so have, you, have you gone back at all to republish any new versions, like with some like bug fixes or typos? Or oh, I, f- I fix typos and stuff all the time. I've okay, been very, okay. I, I'm very open with that. But I, I, I didn't do like an outline and then a couple of chapters and then said, hey, you guys, there's a beta book. I just wanted to make the whole thing available at once. And then with I would tell people the benefits to getting a copy of, through LeanPub is that anytime I make a change, you're going to be notified, notified so you can always know that, that you can grab the latest and greatest version of the book, um, which has been good, which is kind of uh, something that um, you don't get if you go the total um, self-publish route where you like yeah. you use something where you use something like because e- I use eJunkie for my videos, mm-hmm. um, and I think the feedback feedback loop with your customers to tell them that there's updates would be a lot more painful than what it's been with LeanPub. I've loved the fact that with LeanPub, anytime I made a change, I can notify everybody and say, hey, thanks. To, I, I would always thank people and say so-and-so on Twitter pointed out this problem with this code. I fix it. Thanks so much. You can now grab the updated version of the book. So I saw on that, on that topic, I saw that you also have a paperback version of your second book on Lulu. Yep. Um, uh, the first book's up there too. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay, great. Um, and have, do you, do you update those as well? Yes. Every time I make a, yeah, every time I make a change, I push an updated version, of course, which sucks for people that bought copies of it already. But I warn people when you get the paper copy, I said, I do update the, I do update the ebook versions, but at some point the updates stop. Like I think now for the, for the second book, um, there's no more updates. If I were to change anything, maybe if some some point down the road, if I want to do a second edition, I would be adding new material. But I uh, I don't want to go back and change anything. It just feels kind of I just I don't like doing it. it feels kind of weird. Do you sell your eBooks on any platforms other than LeanPub? Nope, just LeanPub. Okay. Is there is there a particular reason for that? Um, I I like it that you guys do all the difficult stuff of collecting the money and the cart and all that stuff. (laughs) Having built several e-commerce systems over the years, um, I know how painful they can be. And I think think it's a lot easier now because I think the payment processors are like way easier to work with than even like three, four years ago. Um, So I imagine, uh, you know, LeanPub's having a little bit of an easier time than when I tried to do stuff in the past. But just I found LeanPub was the easiest way for me to, I, I could, I could concentrate on writing the book because I wasn't going to be worried about building the website that goes with the book, about worrying about, do I have a merchant account set up? And is PayPal going to screw me and hold on to my money? And all these other horrible horror stories that you hear about people sometimes dealing with PayPal, where PayPal at times appears to be very arbitrary and capricious in holding on to people's money. And I was like, I don't want that happening to me at all. Um, um, so it was kind of like that was a whole thing I didn't have to worry about. That's very interesting because we do do we do use PayPal, mm-hmm. um, but we take care of all of all of the complications, I guess. Oh, absolutely! Um, that, that's been the, oh, that's been the easiest. That's been the LeanPub has been the thing that let me do. I'm big on figuring out shortcuts to help you get things done faster, and LeanPub has been the best shortcut for my products because I just I can just work on the book and not have to worry about setting up everything else. I only have to worry about marketing messages. Everything else LeanPub does for me, which is well, that, awesome. Yeah, that, well, thank you very much for saying that because what you're describing is one of the reasons um, that Peter and Scott founded LeanPub in the first place was to get people focusing on, on writing. Oh, absolutely. I don't want to have to, like I said, when, when the first time when I was thinking about this before I discovered LeanPub, who I think I discovered through um, Reg Braithwaite, so okay. um, I was like, man, so I'm going to write the book 
And then I got to figure out how to put it together a tool chain to turn the text into PDF. And then I got to build a shopping cart. I'm like, oh man, do I really want to do all this? And then when I found LeanPipe, I was like, that's like 75% of the stuff I was worrying about gone. And I could just concentrate on writing the book. Great. No, well, that's, that's great to hear. Um, actually, on, uh, with, with respect to selling, um, I'd like to ask you about your approach to pricing. So how do, how do you decide the price for your books? <laughs> I price my – I think of a price that makes me personally uncomfortable and I set it right there. And uh, I have found that, and this is one of the things that Amy talks about as well, that generally speaking, um, programmers uh, undervalue their time and charge way too less for the things that they've produced. And it's not like writing books, like writing lean pub books is a way could replace all my income from my day job because it couldn't. Um, but if I'm going to charge people money, I don't want to give away because I feel, because I look at it in terms of like, if you look at my books, right? The two of them together, even at the bundle, 40 bucks. If you're a decent programmer, that's like an hour, less than an hour of what your time would cost as a freelancer. And you will earn yourself, I don't think this is a hyperbole, tens of thousands of dollars extra by learning to do those things. So that's how I convince people. If you're so cheap that you can't spend 40 bucks, then probably nothing I'm going to say to you is going to matter. But if you look at it in terms of Here's the skills I'm going to learn that are going to push my own skills and probably get me a better job. Or if I'm a freelancer, make me more money. Forty bucks is nothing. Every, every, most people waste forty bucks on stupid stuff every week anyway. So, you know, unless they're cash strapped or whatever, which you know that's how it is. But yeah. I look at it in terms of um, I I want to charge what I think is right for my stuff. And if people complain about the price of my book, well, I have lots of evidence that shows that people are more than happy to give me that amount of money. Have you experimented with the variable pricing at all, um, where you can change the suggested and minimum prices for your books? Um, for the first book, I had a minimum and suggested price, and it was like about probably about half the people went with the minimum. And for the second book, I just said, no, I'm going to have a hard price. And the way that I drive, okay. if I, if, if I want to offer um, different pricing, I just do promotions and discounts and things like that. Um, it's like I, I believe very strongly in that I have a minimum value that I put on the book, and I would like to get that minimum. Okay. Um, I can probably guess the answer to my next question since you're selling your books on LeanPub, but um, do you have any particular opinion about digital rights management for books in general? Um, I think that um, – I'm trying to think of the right way to put this. Uh, I have – I don't worry about people taking uh, – stealing my stuff and like putting it up on – on BitTorrent or trading copies uh, of my books around um, because I'm more interested in getting people understanding the ideas and concepts. And if someone learns it by borrowing a copy of my book from somebody or getting someone to send them a copy, um, I'm not going to have, I don't have a huge problem with that. I, I think that if books were my only source of income, I might be a little bit more strict about it. But for the most part, I'm like, I can make more than enough money to offset the what I believe is the low percentage of uh, unauthorized copies of my books because I tell people I've told people about other stuff. It's like I don't put DRM on my books and I don't put any of that stuff on it um, because I'm willing to trust people. Just respect that I've put a bunch of work into this book and just don't give away copies. I, I've offered people discounts on bulk companies. I've offered company wide licenses and things like that just simply because it's just easier to tell someone if you want this thing. Okay, I can cut you a deal if it's really that important to you. Because with digital stuff, it's like 
the cost of making a, a copy is minimal. It's pennies. It's pennies worth of bandwidth or server time or whatever, right? So I, I don't look at it. I don't feel like the movie industry or the music industry mm-hmm. who are treating every single downloaded copy as a lost sale when there's absolutely zero proof that the person was going to buy it anyway. So I'm more, just more interested in, in getting my name out, building my career, and making more and more people aware that there is a better way to build PHP applications that lets you go home from work on time. Because I work from home and I love being at the end of the day just saying, okay, I'm done. And I don't have to stay late because I really work hard to wrap tests around everything and set clear boundaries on when I'm going to work and when I'm not going to work. And testing in automated systems has been one way for me to really enforce that. Okay, okay. Um, I have a couple of, of LeanPub specific questions to ask. Sure. Um, Okay, and we'd really, really like to know um, your ideas about these kinds of things um, since you've written two of our more successful books. Um, so I know that you're, you, you mentioned that you're selling some uh, DRM-free um, videos. I think they're called um, the PHP Testing Bootcamp Sessions. Correct, um, yep. on your On your Grumpy Learning website. And I was wondering what you're doing to drive sales there and if there's anything LeanPub could do to help you with that or do you prefer to keep your book and video sales separate? Well, I mean, I am trying to kind of get everything under the one umbrella of Grumpy Learning because it kind of helps a little bit from the branding point of view, again, with the marketing right. stuff, right? Um, uh, LeanPub seems – screencasts and ebooks are like two completely different beasts. Um, and I think LeanPub do, I think does a really good job of promoting to people that – if you have a niche technical idea, LeanPub is a great way to validate that idea because you can start working on something and get money in while you're working on building the book out. Because, I, I mean, I don't know. I'm probably the rarity amongst your authors who doesn't release the book until it's, you know, done. Most of the most I, – I get the impression that most people are um, – are doing the beta thing. They're starting off with a couple of chapters and they're, they're just writing as they find time and um, people are happy to give them money and follow them along on the process. And sometimes I, I felt like when I would get involved in one of these beta book things that you kind of feel like you're there with the author and you're helping to participate and shape the book in some way, even if it's only just dropping them a note about a chapter and saying, oh, I like this part or I found this part confusing. So uh, there is really no market for like in progress screencast. If there is one thing that I think would make it that would be that LeanPub again does a great job of managing like the sales part of things. And if I ever wanted to do like a subscription based type thing where, you know, crank out the content and sell subscriptions, having a party that could handle the digital distribution and the collection of money and the bring and, you know, doing all the recurring billing because you can do all that stuff for yourself with PayPal and other payment processes. But again, like I mentioned before, if someone else gives me a shortcut that they can handle all that stuff, then I can concentrate on making sure the content gets done. So I don't know, lean screencasts. I mean, I don't know what the next (laughs) step with that, the idea of just handle infrastructure to handle digital delivery and subscriptions. That would be the thing that would um, make me uh, want to use LeanPub for the screencast. Like I'm okay, okay to keep them separate, just simply because LeanPub is not set up to handle that stuff. I can I can handle the collection of money and setting things up with eJunkie and stuff like that. But if I got into like a subscription based model, I may have to do something myself, and that's when I would start looking, and saying who has already done the infrastructure for me. 
Yeah, that's that's very interesting, um, especially because I mean the 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 idea of in progress publishing corresponds to serial publishing, or one one version of in progress publishing corresponds to serial publishing, and books often novels were often written in the past. Um, um, serial or published serially in magazines, oh, abs- to which absolutely, yep. subscriptions. So there's a there is a, a possible fit there, I think. It, it would be kind of interesting because I, I mean, I've thought about doing stuff like um, email courses, right? Take a bunch of material, chop it up, uh, then get people to sign up, and then you drip stuff. They're, they're called like drip courses. Just drip stuff out to them yeah. over time. The thing I never figured out was how do you make money off of that? Unless you're just using it as like a marketing thing. That every you know every email is loaded with all your marketing messages. Buy my books, buy my videos, all that mm-hmm. stuff. Um, the idea of doing like serial, uh, you know, serial technical books um, is an interesting one, um, a time intensive one, a labor intensive one to be sure. But again, since I'm big on this stuff with the right amount of research and the right content, um, it's probably something I could make money at too. <laughs> Is there anything in particular that that we could do um, to help you engage with people who've already bought your books? We we do have, as you mentioned earlier, that you used um, when you were starting to promote your second book. You were emailing the readers of your first book um, using our email readers feature. But is there is there something else that you were thinking? Did anything else occur to you along those lines of engaging with existing readers that we don't have that we could have? Uh I don't know. One of the things that I found interesting was um, I know that LeanPub has the um, um, the unconditional money back guarantee, mm-hmm. uh, and I had somebody ask for a refund because he happened to find um, the the GitHub repo that I've been using for the book. Right. Um, I had it public, so they found it and then said, "Well, I don't see why I should pay when the author's making the material available um, for free on GitHub," and um, um, I blew a gasket because I didn't like that. And I didn't like throwing away, even though it's a relatively minor amount of money, I didn't like the fact that, that somebody got a refund because they happened to figure out where the repo was. Um, and so one of the things I'm finding that I'm not getting in, is it would be nice that if there's feedback that the author gets copied on it because, I mean, it would be nice if someone, if I would have, an issue has been refund, an issue has been refunded, no issue, uh, sorry, a refund has been given and here's their explanation why. And now I understand that, I'm, I mean, I'm, I wasn't intending to put the screws to LeanPub and say, I don't want you issuing refunds because that, that's part of, you guys want to issue refunds? That's cool. I filed it under the same thing as with DRM. An extremely small percentage of people that have bought my book decided they didn't like it. And that's okay. The book, I tried to make the book targeted to a certain group of people. And if it's not working for them, then you want your money back? No problem. I would rather have people who are interested in what I want giving me money instead of people being resentful that they've bought something and there's no way if they feel that they got ripped off or didn't get their money's worth that there's no way for them to recoup that stuff. So, I mean, I don't know how much feedback LeanPub gets from the people who have bought the books because I encourage people to hit me up on Twitter and email. So I've had people tell me they didn't like the book or for whatever reasons. And I always tell people the same thing. I appreciate the feedback. If it's a problem I can fix, I'll fix it. If it's not, if it's just like a philosophical thing, I'm like, well, I'm sorry that the book just wasn't for you, and you can always go hit up LeanPub for a refund. Yeah. So well, we actually um, do. The good news is we actually do have um, a feedback feature for refunds. So when people mm-hmm. are requesting their refund, they they have an opportunity to leave a comment. Um, we we made it light touch, so you don't have to leave a comment. Right. Um, but if you go to your books URL at LeanPub and just put slash refunds, you'll see a mm-hmm. column of comments. Um, yeah. Well, well no, I think that's more along the lines of I would have what I would have wanted 
Um, it's just an email saying, okay, hey, some, I see. Some, someone just got a refund and here's their comment. Just so, again, all about shortcuts, right? If I can get a little shortcuts that pop up reminders and tell me things, then um, the, the, my to-do list every day gets smaller and smaller because over time I slowly replace manual systems with automated ones that let me know when things have happened. So again, um, like, so again, I don't have to worry about it. Like I'm a big believer. I'm not a neat freak by any stretch of imagination. You should see what the, the desk that I'm sitting at looks like. It's covered with <laughs> junk just because I play, I play that collectible card game, Magic, so there's magic oh, yeah. cards on my desk and stuff. But I'm always a big believer in like repeatable processes and putting things in the same place all the time. So if I always – so. If if I always knew that refunds were gonna refund comments were gonna be sent to my email, I never have to remember. Oh yeah, I need to go to LeanPub today, or this is my weekly check to see what's going on with the refunds. Systems that notify me always prompt me to do better action than systems I have to remember to go see. So, but just a minor quibble. I, I will say I've been extremely, and this is not just because I'm on the podcast. Been extremely, extremely happy with everything that LeanPub has done for me, and I feel like my books couldn't have been couldn't have been as big a success without LeanPub providing all the infrastructure shortcuts for me. I would have had to do it all myself, and who knows what problems I could have run into. I could have had problems getting payments, getting money out of PayPal, and all these other things. LeanPub has eliminated that problem for me. Well, thank you very much. It's very validating. LeanPub was and is being built on the customer development model where you, you launch something that you know isn't perfect, but you do it in order to see if you're actually addressing problems people have, and then the people with those problems, you, you build the product based on their, their actual needs rather than some kind of formal vision of what you think the world should be like. Shortcuts, people. It's all about the shortcuts. It's, it's how I get so much stuff done because I don't do everything manually. Hmm. That's the secret. That's what I tell people. My secret is shortcuts. Automate yeah, well, everything you can. Yeah, that, 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 that um, idea of getting an, an email when someone re- requests a refund is excellent because it also – corresponds to the, the idea that when you're when you're managing a book it's uh, a relationship with your readers that's changing um, and so getting little alerts that something's going on um, would, would yeah increase that sense of engaging yeah it's not it's not like I'm looking to pick a fist fight with people who want a refund or anything yeah. it's just like I, I just I want to know if you didn't like it okay that's cool I can respect that I just want to know I want to know why so that I don't make that second mistake or if it's not even a mistake if it's just like well i didn't like it because of reasons xyz and i i happen not to agree with them well then now i know that some people don't like it but i mean i do look from time to time and i am happy that the percentage of people who have requested refunds is like really really small yeah yeah no that's definitely true that's true it's true of your books and it's actually true of of um of most lean pub books um it's just the the rate of refund request is very low um which we think is a um, a, a sign of, of the quality of our books, but also um, um, the fact that if you trust people, um, they're often trustworthy. Um, Absolutely. And, and, and refunds aren't, aren't all, they're also, they're all, they also serve an important function. Our two-click refund feature is very important because um, when, when you're doing self-publishing in progress, when you're platform for mostly self-published in progress books, um, giving people the, the security um, when they're buying it that they're not taking a risk at all except maybe with a little bit of time um, on this this book is a really key key part of, of what we're doing yeah and I have found that like I, I feel like lean pub lets me be a little bit closer to everyone that's bought my book or want or bought my books or wants to know more about 
the stuff that I'm doing. I feel like there's um, there's like no there's there's not all these layers of middlemen for lack of a better. I mean, I wanted to say rent seeker, but that's probably being mean. But right. um, but like you know, if you're like, I mean, I had people telling me stuff like, oh, uh, a self-published book isn't legit, right? And I'm like. Well, I don't know about you, but I know people who've written books for O'Reilly, and I've made way more money off of way fewer units than what they got from O'Reilly. And it's more like if you're doing it for notoriety, okay, but it's like, wouldn't you rather make more money with the same amount of effort? Um, you know, you look at O'Reilly, you have the publisher, and then you have you have an editor, and and you have a PR person, and sometimes you you know those are too many layers um, for people to go through. Who want to actually just talk to you? It's just kind of interesting when I meet people who've bought my book and and they kind of get an awkward about like actually meeting me. It's like, oh, I had your book and I just felt kind of weird coming up and talking to you. And I'm like, yeah, I get that, but I'm just I'm just behind all this stuff behind the book and Twitter and all the other nonsense that I do. I'm still just a person, and you can come up and or speakers and all that stuff. It's like I'm just a person who happens to have worked very hard at promoting themselves and um and. At the end of the day, I feel like Lean Pub lets me be closer to those people. Way less um, things getting in the way of when people like want to ask about the book and want to buy it and want to talk to me about things that are in it. I always feel like a book done through a, tradi- a more traditional tech publisher, more like a more obstacles in your way of actually getting to talk to the person and seeing that your suggestions. Um, are being acted upon in the book, which I imagine is something that happens a lot more often for the people who are doing the in-progress books, that the, that early feedback from the, the early adopters is probably really, really good. Yes. Um, but like I said, I just I've, I didn't want to do it that way. I wanted to do the book complete, and I didn't want to share it until I felt it was at a place of being done. I don't know, maybe that's some sort of um, in, insecurity that belies my outrageousness on Twitter, but you know, <laughs> people are complicated. Um, do you have um, any... Other feature requests, something that I mean, if you if you could sort of magically snap your fingers, LeanPub would do it. Um, that would came out of your experience using. using I, I, I do I do know one thing that you guys actually did for me way back in the day, early on uh, in the, I think it was the first book. I noticed that there was no way to download sales data. You guys didn't have an export feature, so I remember asking Peter. It's like, yeah, I want to kind of graph how my book's been doing to like give people a chart to show them over time and stuff. Um, and within a couple of days, um, you know, LeanPub implemented uh, export sales um, as CSV, um, you know, so that I could take it and put it into a spreadsheet and take a look at. Um, if there is one thing that I would like that something that I learned out of the um, out of my experience with the product development course, which may be a touchy subject for LeanPub, is the exporting of email addresses. Now, I know you guys have opt-in where they can agree to share their email address with me, and I can see for every sale. Um, but just from um, just from like a marketing of future products and, and trying to engage people who have bought stuff to see maybe you're interested in some of the other things that I've done, that and some of them might be outside of LeanPub. The ability to like export email addresses of people who've bought stuff if they if they've wanted to share them if they've um, opted in if they've opted in uh, right. clearly I don't want to just take everybody's email address if they've agreed to share that just from the way that I do things would be immensely helpful because then I can then turn around and combine things into a list and again just focus on making sure that people who are interested in the things that I want to talk about are getting that message so ability to export uh, the list of 
email addresses that have opted in would be something that I would like to see. Yeah, well, that that sounds um, that sounds reasonable to me. I mean, we, if people opt in to show you their email address, mm-hmm. we are already showing it to you and and Correct. allowing you to export. That would just make it more more useful. Um, but we we are, as you know, we're very very um protective of, of things like that. So we'll discuss it internally, yeah. but it sounds, yeah, you know, it sounds because, quite reasonable. Because also in terms of like, yeah, if I want to, if I want to send a message to my, to people who bought my book, um, I can just use, I just do it via the form. And I mean, I don't know, maybe you can answer this question for me. It, if I go to my book and I want to send, if I go to like for my second book and I go to send an email to all the readers, is every single person that bought my book getting that email or just the ones that opted in? Um, I believe that it's they have they have to opt in, but let just let okay. me check something here. Because um, I've always been curious about that. Because if that's the case, then the export email is a nice thing that just lets me take their email addresses and put it into like a, like a mailing list manager thing, like um, like Mailchimp or something like that. Um, I've always been curious because I've always thought that every single person who's ever bought my book will get an email if I send it via that. But Actually, the thing yeah, is, no, that is, that is, I just checked. No, that is, that is the case there. They're automatically opted into new release announcements and author right. emails sent, sent from LeanPub. Right. Cause uh, I mean, they, I, yeah. but that doesn't mean that you see, obviously, you know, that, that doesn't mean that you actually see the emails, um, the email addresses of the people that you're sending to. Yeah. Because I have sent, I have sent emails saying, Hey, I have this mail list and I would really appreciate if you sign up for it. And yeah, a large number of people have signed up. But not the same. But it's not the same number of people that bought the book. So clearly, there are some people reluctant um, to hand out their email addresses. And again, that's cool. It's just that from a from from the kind of product development perspective that I've gone on, it would be nice to actually have those email addresses. Not that I would. And to make it 100% clear, I would never, ever, ever in a billion years sell those email lists to anybody because I hate spam just as much as the next person. Mm-hmm. I'm just interested in having people who want to hear from me, hear from me. And if you don't want to hear from me, then please, I don't want to waste any time sending you a message. Right. So that's just one thing would be nice. Okay. The ability to export that list of emails from people who have already agreed to share it. That's about it. Everything. I mean, I know it sounds like a, like a, a pro lean pub commercial, but I've been extremely <laughs> happy. I'm extremely happy and extremely um, grateful that I found you guys because it's like I said, it's made I could just worry about the books and not worry about all the infrastructure. Well, on that on that positive note, I'm I'm, I'm actually at the end of my questions. But um, is there anything you, you'd like to add? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I do. Anytime that people talk about wanting to do a book. I always recommend that they use LeanPub just for all those reasons. The infrastructure is taken care of. Um, the tools to convert um, Markdown to PDF, EPUB, and um, Mobi um, are awesome. Again, it's just stuff I don't have to worry about. I, I write the book once, and somebody else takes care of making sure it looks right. And again, since I'm all about automating and shortcuts, that's, that's perfect for somebody like me. Okay. Well, great. Um, thanks for a great interview. And um Thanks very much for being on the Lean Publishing Podcast and for being a Lean Pub author. Oh, thank you. I, I enjoyed our talk.